analytics and tech initiatives. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Thank God it started right after initiatives, right? <laughs> <laughs> I need my soundproof room again. <laughs> Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Marlene, this week we are going to be talking with Ann Tucker and Ben Chapman from Georgia State University School of Law regarding the university's Institute for Insights. Greg, I spoke at the D-Law Conference in New York City this week to a group of in-house counsel, lawyers, law firm business professionals, and, and vendors, and appropriately my topic... T- <laughs> was big data and legal analytics, which is what we're going to talk about with our guests today. So what does and the uh, D in D-Law stand for? It stands for disrupt. Ah, okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. I really liked this conference a lot. It was hosted and sponsored by Momentum, Walters Clore, and others. And what I will say is that it was small, but really mighty. You know, unfortunately, I was, I was going to give you some great quotes, but my notebook containing my notes from the first day was liberated from me. <laughs> so it's, it's riding the uh, subway somewhere in New York City. <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm sure the notebook is enjoying the streets of New York City right now. So I will do my best to highlight the themes. There, there was a focus on the future-ready lawyer and what that looks like. And Walters Kluwer actually shared a report with attendees about that. Change management, both in adoption of tools and process, was also a theme. In addition to that, it was also about business culture change. I particularly enjoyed the conversation that we had about when business culture clashes with an organization's security and legal needs. Mm -hmm. There were lots of this, is this right or wrong scenarios and how things like the GDPR will change how we're approaching information governance. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, there was a session on information governance and the different guidance proposals that are out there. There's a lot, much, many more than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, all over the world. I saw a number of contract management and automation solutions, which were very cool. Since it's me, I particularly like the one that highlighted provision deviation. You know, they had a scatter, you know, they had a scatter chart on that. Like how often is the wording changing, which can impact how you're gonna draft. Right. And the last theme was a new way of staffing and skills that are gonna be needed. Definitely there was a team theme here and how and I will say I was disappointed to hear how many times non-lawyer was mentioned, but allied professionals (laughs) will be at the table and will provide the competitive advantage for organizations. And I'll add one more thing. I I learned at Oric, they actually have a mindfulness position that Mm -hmm. uh, somebody had had moved into. So, you know, they have somebody who's watching that. So I think that was great. Okay. I did sit in on a breakout session that was devoted to corporate legal optimization and automation. And the focus seems to be on obligation management, like, you know, the contract lifecycle, mm-hmm. uh, outside counsel fees and discovery costs. So that seems to be what the main focus for everybody there was. I did learn that there really is a huge opportunity to work together on knowledge, analytics, and tech initiatives. Because counsel are so busy doing their day-to-day, having a trusted advisor to provide feedback and even help implement projects will offer a real value to them. Well, it sounds like a great conference. So, is that is it done annually? Uh, yeah, I believe it is done annually. So we'll have you'll have to look for it next season. Well, that's great. Glad you enjoyed that. Um, I had a, a firm retreat uh, this weekend. I got to play guitar in my band. Very um, cool. I play I play guitar in a band every two years, whether they want me or not. So <laughs> lots lots of fun, and we played uh, every Doobie Brothers and Leonard Skinner song you could think of. So. I was going to say, what was your favorite? <laughs> what was your favorite one? Oh, what was my favorite? Uh, we do a version of uh, Leonard Skinner, The Breeze, where mm-hmm. we uh, introduce, uh, we have one lyric or one uh, verse that is about Jackson Walker lawyers. So it was, oh. it was a lot of fun. So nice. a, lot of, a lot of tongue in cheek in, in that one. 
great bandmates. It's a it's absolutely a blast to do. And as I always say, I'm not very good, but I'm really loud. So you know, <laughs> make, make up, up for it. I make up for it. <laughs> All right, Marlene. Well, let's roll into this week's information inspirations. Do you need some basic introductions and helpful checklists to start your competitive intelligence work at your firm? It wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt. No. <laughs> <laughs> then you will also be inspired by Kevin Miles' article in the AAL Spectrum and reprinted in the On Firmer Ground group blog entitled The Power of CI Checklists. Kevin's one of those CI gurus at Norton Rose Fulbright, and he not only walks through some of the checklists you'll need for CI reports on people company, litigation parties, industry, intellectual property, and other activities. He also provides some checklists formatted in MS Word. Very helpful indeed, folks. Yeah, I've checked that out. It's uh, pretty pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's fairly simple, but hey, it, it, simple is sometimes what simple is, it, is kiss? good kiss uh, you yes. know, keep, keep it short and simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly right. Well, mine uh, comes in from the UK, and the Financial Times has a 15-article intelligent business uh, report where they do uh, 15 articles that are focused on the legal industry. And while the Financial Times is a UK operation, many of the topics they discuss in these articles are about the US legal market. And there are two articles which highlight uh, 10 people in each article who are shaping the legal market and the legal business technologists who are leveraging the legal technology to streamline the complex and repetitive world of legal processes. There's an article on the big four shift to compete with big law, both in the UK and potentially in the US, and a couple of articles on the promise of technology versus the overwhelming nature of understanding and actually using the technology available to today's legal professionals. It's a great series of articles which are very relevant to our interview later in this episode. And while the Financial Times is usually behind a very strict paywall, yes, <laughs> this special report seems to be outside of that paywall. So uh, in, enjoy it while you can. Well, that sounds like an absolute must read. So yeah. I, I, will, I will get to it after we do this recording. <laughs> Google Quantum Computer has achieved quantum supremacy. Don't, that don't, is that don't, that is don't. a quote. <laughs> so using <laughs> using a quantum computer. Now, now I want to see the guy with the cape and the big you know, the <laughs> thing. The, you know the evil guy coming out. To, that's Dun-da-da! what I see. Yes. When I when I hear quantum supremacy. Yes. Very good. Well, using a quantum computer, Google managed to perform a calculation in just over three minutes that would take the world's most powerful supercomputer 10,000 years. Wow. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. Now, we've talked about quantum computing in prior inspirations, but that was more as, you know, kind of a futuristic thing. Well, (laughs) no, it isn't so futuristic. (laughs) Welcome to the future. Exactly. You know, blockchain better be looking over its shoulder because quantum computers can break through its defenses. Yeah, I can. Yeah, that's one of the the first things that they're talking about with uh, with quantum computing is blocking or uh, rather cracking the mm-hmm. super security. Um, so, uh, yay, yay! And it's well, you, you know, know it, does Google still have that do no evil thing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, the, well, the way it, but the way you look at it is like okay. They do this, but then, you know, it just gives you the opportunity to do better. It's like, okay, it's out there. So now we, we have to find a better, you know, defense or a better solution. That's true. It. That's true. So we'll have uh, quantum computers going up against quantum computers. Okay. Exactly. Yay. All right. Oh, I'm going to throw one more in and I'll try to make it, make it quick. So hmm. there is an interesting, and I think it was a webinar that they've turned into a podcast from Thomson Reuters, and it was run by law librarian David Curl, which they called Upskilling the Legal Profession, Addressing Today's Legal Talent Gaps. Northwestern law professor and former dean Daniel Rodriguez and Legal Mosaic CEO Mark Cohen have a long conversation 
on the style of teaching at law schools and the need to shake things up. But there's this lack of both, I, I think, internal and external pressure to help move the legal education into these new styles of educating students to be better prepared and be more proficient at the skills needed to practice law in the 21st century. As we all know, the legal education system is still based on 19th and 20th century teaching techniques. So. <laughs> And I have to say, I, I have never met uh, Daniel Rodriguez before, but I have admired his writings on topics, and I really enjoy his social, his social media presence. Yeah. I have to say that he has a very strong personality that comes out in this, That's <laughs> in true. this interview. Yes. That, you know, and it comes through on the recording, and, and it actually took me a while to kind of warm up to him because it seemed like he was being pretty snarky uh, at first, but, and he actually kind of admits to doing it uh, in the interview. But as you listen to him, you can tell it's much more of a passion that he has for the topic and his frustration. And, and in a way, he's partly encouraged by the way the industry is leaning right now. It's, it's really a great discussion. And I would suggest uh, in anyone that's interested in how legal education is ad adapting um, take a listen to this one. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, look, it, it's okay to be frustrated. Like these, these things are, are, are moving slowly. And I mean, if you're passionate about something, you, you definitely want to see it move forward and get better. And, you know, sometimes the wheels move slowly. So yeah, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And that wraps up this week's information inspirations. We are very excited to be speaking with Ann Tucker, the Faculty Director of Legal Analytics and Innovation Initiative at Georgia State University College of Law, and Ben Chapman, Executive Director of Legal Analytics and Innovation Initiative at Georgia State University College of Law, regarding the university's Institute for Insights. Great, we great title. Yes, I love <laughs> it. I love it. You know, wonder why. <laughs> now, we have representatives from law schools on the podcast frequently speaking about tech and design education initiatives, and they are terrific. And yes, we're going to continue are. to have them on, <laughs> particularly because at this conference that I was at, like a lot of people weren't aware of what's going on in, in the law schools. So, you know, I'm hoping we're going to be able to make some connections there. But why this one is particularly interesting is that there is really not much programming and study devoted to legal analytics yet. So Anne and Ben and their colleagues at the lab are really pioneers in this area. Okay, well, welcome all. We're very excited to have you here and to talk about legal analytics and their applications. Before we get started, I, I have to give props to the J. Mac Robinson College of Business at GSU for the name of their Data Analytics Center, the Institute for Insight. <laughs> um, I feel this is a place where, you know, one should make a pilgrimage, so like the Oracle of Delphi. But uh, seriously, please tell us how this unique collaboration between the law school and the business school came to be and your roles in it. Sure. It is a great name. I have to tell you, I always feel extra important and smart whenever I get to say that when I'm speaking to groups, the Institute for Insight, I feel like it really ups my credibility. So our partnership between the law school and the business school began with a colleague of ours um, who has a joint appointment at both schools and in her research had started to partner with some of the data scientists that are working at the Institute for Insight and seeing the application of new methodologies to traditional legal questions. So with the spark of that one idea, our, our colleague Charlotte Alexander started thinking maybe there are others who want to use this. So she reached out to several folks on the faculty, myself included, and it got the ball rolling. We started a legal analytics lab. Um, one thing about the Institute for Insight is that there are several domain-specific labs. So there's one on fintech, one on business operations, one on social media intelligence, and now we have one focused on legal analytics. So with this idea of grouping folks with the same type of interests and excitement around this idea under one umbrella, 
we started thinking about what we could do with that energy and with that talent. And out of that came opportunities to do some sponsored research for outside parties, um, development of our own research agendas, thinking about how we could offer classes for both JD and uh, Masters of Science and Data Analytics students. And so sort of that one idea that like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we tried this? Uh, that was almost two and a half years ago now. And a lot has happened from that one one, hey, wouldn't it be cool idea? One of the things that was so interesting about this, and I think one of the things that's a bit different about Georgia State's approach to this, is that it really was the research agenda and continues to be the research agenda that drove the creation of the uh, analytics and innovation initiative at the College of Law. And that's because of this deep partnership with this research-driven approach uh, that was happening at RCB, at the College of Business. Yeah, and I can maybe say one other. So I, I think the narrative about, oh, it began with this idea, um, and now we've got a, a full program, these things that are happening, that, of course, jumps over a tremendous amount of internal <laughs> steps that, <laughs> that take us from, like, cool <laughs> idea to, you know, having, having a program that folks like Geek and Review want to talk to us about, which is super exciting for us and validating for what we've done. But of course, that that does jump over a ton of the steps in between. And I can say a couple of things, which is in order to make this idea come into fruition, one of the things that we were able to do is apply for internal funding through our provost office. Since this is a program that I think is in part at least targeted to academics, that's a that's a tidbit that might be interesting to folks. Mm -hmm. um, but we were able to apply for internal funding that, that was really competitive across the whole university. And with that, we received funding to hire two new faculty members. We also, through that proposal, were able to conceive of an executive director position, which is the role that Ben fills. We were able to articulate like what this would look like and what we hope to do. And also through making those proposals and talking to as many people, we saw an opportunity to not to take our research out of our, our own heads um, and our papers that we write and think about um, how we could create curricular opportunities out of that. So in all of those conversations, we were also pushed to, or maybe I should say encouraged, to create a certificate program and some other curricular opportunities so that in, in a, a year from when we had that idea, we had a proposal, we had funding for which we were going to go out and hire, we had new programs that we were going to be launching in the next year or so, and that's how it came to be. Ben? One, one of the things that's really important to understand is sort of the entrepreneurial nature of Georgia State University. So the idea with at Georgia State has been that they are an urban university providing opportunities to in some cases, previously underserved populations. They are also the largest institution of higher education in Georgia with 51,000 students now. And since at least the mid-2000s, and certainly since 2012, they've received significant positive notice based on their use of analytics in terms of student success, student retention, minority population advancement. So at the university level, they're primed to see the benefits of the use of data. That's a good point. In a different, in a different context. But often these projects start out, there's an old a book that describes these projects as Lone Ranger projects. And you'll have one faculty member who's interested in one yeah. thing. And that is not, that's not been the situation here at Georgia State. You had faculty members who were interested, but that interest was married with an institutional drive uh, right. to look into these areas to see how we, could, how we could use them to benefit our students, our staff, our faculty. Well, that's really smart because the one of the things that we stress is knowing what your overall strategy is for your organization and then making sure that whatever you're working on 
works with that overall strategy. So it sounds like that's exactly what you guys did. And it also sounds like we could we could devote an entire separate <laughs> podcast to how you had to so how you had to sort of plan this and the steps that you had to take as well as the strategy. You know, we we often talk about like what people are doing and and it sounds, you know, as as you've mentioned, it sounds great, but as also you pointed out, there's a lot of work behind the scenes to get something like this off the ground. Yeah. One of the things that we hear a lot about in the legal industry is the relationship between AI and innovation, but you're addressing more of the analytics and innovation. So are, are those similar discussions or, or are they on two different paths? Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I do think that they are similar. I think what we're trying to do is two things. So one with analytics is we're looking at a new methodological approach to quantitative analysis. And so that might be enhanced methods to generate the data that's traditionally, that's used in traditional quantitative analysis, but that can also be leveraging new quantitative methods like machine learning, the use of advanced algorithms. And so we think about that as encompassing the entire suite of computational tools that are currently available, that are being envisioned right now. On one side, we think of it more of like the skills, the methodology, having an understanding about how that works. On the innovation side, which is in truth a part that we're still developing, at least in my mind as I'm thinking about that, is looking at um, changes in the practice of law and thinking about how is the practice of law advancing and what are the what are the tools that are facilitating that advancement? And that can be at the individual level, that can be at the firm level, that can be across whole practice areas. And so there, we're thinking more about how others have brought some of the tools embedded in what we think of as analytics to market in a variety of platforms, services, and new approaches. Ben, I'm sure has something good to add here. So Ben, jump in. <laughs> no, 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 I think I think. Please, Anne, Ben, add something. No, how Thank can you. I add anything to that? I think, that, I think absolutely uh, nailed it. But I think there's another question. I think that you are getting at this idea of AI versus analytics, mm-hmm. and that is actually, I I think in our world. We prefer to say machine learning rather than AI, but in in our world, we really see analytics and machine learning as two sides of the same coin. We think that that there's a, a what we see as a false dichotomy between statistics versus machine learning. They're very much aspects of the same set of processes. And so we want to be clear about that. And in fact, our Legal Analytics 1 course is very much a quantitative methods, traditional social science research kind of introduction to the field. We then build on that to build classification models or regression models in subsequent courses. Yeah, and I think that that reflects, um, we, we talked a little bit about the cool name that the Institute for Insight has, but we haven't talked about what it, what it means. And it is a, a really, I think, extraordinarily great idea and that it's not domain specific so that the faculty members that are a part of the Institute for Insight have different backgrounds in engineering and computer science and in statistics. And with that cross-pollination of different backgrounds, folks are coming to applied analytics questions and bringing to bringing with them their unique skill set. So there is a deep tradition, at least in our, in the Institute for Insight, and that's carried over to what we're doing with an emphasis on uh, traditional statistical methods as an important and integral part of what we do. Also, an important thing to note is the faculty members that we've hired and that are a part of um, our legal analytics initiative all come with some form of formal statistical training and then have taken that as a foundation and moved into machine learning applications in their own research and work. Well, this is interesting because you, you're sort of, le- you've, you've set up my next question really nicely. So thank you for that. You um, why is this mashup of, of data scientists and accountants and risk management experts, you know, the math heads and the law school, so the scholars, why is this so important in the space of, of analytics? 
that's a good question. So I'm going to answer it just with our own experience. And that is, um, we're finding that the problems that we are interested in our research and the problems that outside clients are bringing to us do not fit nicely within a single silo or a domain. And even what we might have thought of as, oh, this is a law question, when it involves thousands of opinions or cases, when it involves looking at all the docket sheets across all federal district courts, it becomes a subject matter law question, but a methodologically, a question that can benefit from methods of other disciplines. And so I love that. we're, we're fine. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. Please, <laughs> It's for the taking. I mean, this is so we're just, I think that this all came about rather organically because the questions that are being brought, they, they start as one thing, but they implicate so many other aspects that to do a good job at answering the question as comprehensively as possible, we need a team of experts. We also think that this reflects how organizations work and even the law will work in the future. Um, complex questions require complex teams and a variety of skill sets, methodologies, and um, our own discipline-specific language and tools. When we bring those to bear on a single problem in a collaborative effort, we can answer so much more than we could individually. And so if nothing else, even if our students, the JD students, don't leave here and become um, crack coders or programmers, which that's not, frankly, the, the end goal for, for most of our students, uh, we think if nothing else, they will have experienced what it is like to work in an interdisciplinary and dynamic team and to see how their subject matter expertise has grown in a, in a way, like law students can teach something to non-law students about the law. And they also learn something when they work with students from other disciplines. That as a skill, I think will be necessary as they go on to be leaders in their law practice and their organizations and in their careers. Yeah, this is, this is interesting because you hit on a, t- a topic that we often talk about on on the podcast, which is about teams and different teams bringing different types of expertise to the situation. And, you know, lawyers don't have to be unicorns, like they don't have to know all of this stuff or all of this stuff in, in a deep sort of way, but, you know, need to understand it enough to know that it's important and need to bring in the appropriate people to help solve the, the, the problems. Yeah. So one other thing on that point, and then I think Ben's got Ben's got to jump in here. So the other thing is one of our goals too is to give law students a deep appreciation of the sophisticated skills that other disciplines bring so that when they are partnering with folks, they do not think that there is a like a button pushing machine out of which answers are just generated um, quickly, effortlessly, that there's Thank some you. sort of magic <laughs> that happens. And I want them, to, we want them to see the, not the struggle, the struggle is real, um, but we want them to, <laughs> get, we want them to get an understanding of, of how much work goes into that so that they can be participants in that and that they can also appreciate and then plan workflows around that reality. Mm. And so that is another benefit is it takes this idea of like, oh, isn't that somebody else's job? Can't somebody else do this? All right, Ben, what, what uh, would Well, you I add? just wanted to add in that, of course, a critical part of this are the knowledge management professionals, the librarians and others who are also providing a whole additional aspect and critical contribution to this research. And in fact, two of the courses that count for our certificate, law practice technology and legal technological, it's a long title, legal technological competency and operations. Those two courses are both taught by librarians. One by uh, by Chris Niedringhaus, who is our associate dean for the director of the library, in cooperation with the director of, of the law practice management program at the state bar. And so that gives us that, that exposure, gives our students rather, exposure to that profession, both the support that you can get from the library staff and then also exposure to commercial products and some of the other products that people within the state bar are seeing and that also that our, our professional library staff is seeing. It is a multifaceted partnership as we try to turn out new attorneys who will be really conscious of the need for 
both emotional intelligence and teamwork in these projects where we acknowledge the contributions of all of the professionals that work together to create legal services in this new era. Well, and I like that you talked about making sure that they knew holistically what all goes into the process of analytics that that they can't just you know hit the uh, easy button and and make it so and and I think one of the things that we run into is that vendors that are producing a product tend to kind of prop up gloss that, over gloss over yeah, that yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and there, you know and there's a lot of there's more PR than there is analytics or, or AI when it comes to some of this stuff. So how do you determine the projects that you work upon there at the lab? And then, you know, so you look at the project, then you have to look at the staffing, and then you have to look at the length of time that, it, that it's going to take. So what's your overall process of, on picking a project? Okay, can I, I want to jump back. I'll, I'll an, I will answer your question in just a moment, but I want to say one thing about, sure. um, one, uh, this sounds counterintuitive, but one of our goals of the program is to invite some skepticism around this idea that there is an easy button and around platforms that overpromise. And we want students to have the skills as lawyers to ask questions like, what are your sources of data? How do you train? What's the process? that they have the ability to ask intelligent questions that review. Chris Needinghouse's course specifically is focused on that skill, on how to review. But I think generally our courses invite lawyers to have the skills to do that. We have, I at least have some concern about seeding to the technologists and the statisticians authority, final authority over what will ultimately become a part of lawyers' work product. As soon as we do that, uh, lawyers become increasingly irrelevant. So, And they, they're giving up an, a tremendous amount of of their final work product. So I, I want to encourage them to have ownership over that process and bring that skepticism. All right. So in the question of, of picking the project, I'll, I'll talk about it in two respects. One is for the lab class. So I uh, we teach a semester-long applied legal analytics lab that has JD students and students in our Master's of Science of Analytics. In that class, we try and take a data-driven problem and solve it or get as close to solving it over the course of a semester. And for those projects, um, I don't know if you can hear like the, the tone of my voice starting to get more stressed. <laughs> Because that is truly how I feel um, as we approach these. It is so far outside of my comfort zone because it's not a controlled environment. There are a ton of unknowns. It ends up being more last minute than I would like. Um, we have done external projects where we work with a, we do sponsored research for an outside client and we're working with the client's data. And we're trying to provide an analysis of that by the end of the semester. Um, that has some pros and cons. Uh, it's great for students. It provides the very real sense of stress of producing a work product at the end of the semester. And it feels important to students from the get-go. And it's a great way for students to audition for jobs they may have. When we don't work with outside clients and we're, we do what we call an internal sprint, where we take a research-driven question and answer it over the course of the semester, I will say in both scenarios, we end up modifying what our end goal is based on our progress, based on what we see. So we both accomplish maybe less than what we start out at the semester, but then in some ways accomplish more because we'll go deeper on one question. In terms of picking the project, we are trying to pick an issue that has that provides an opportunity for students to engage with an interesting methodology. So we want there to be some meat for the analytics students. We also want there to be a substantive legal question that requires the law students to go in and analyze and work with the MSA students. And a lot of times that's building either keyword-based code, that's building um, training sets for machine learning classes, it is the law students translating legal concepts over to the MSA students, and it's the law students um, getting familiar with the workflow, reviewing output, identifying errors, finding patterns, coming up with solutions about how to do this. This is an 
an entirely iterative and collaborative process. We do have a break point at about week 12 of beginning to focus on the presentation. So students then can bind their work into a a formal end of semester presentation that we run through around week 13 and then present in week 14. And so at week 12, we really stop exploration. And if we have not, it moves entirely to interpretation, synthesis, application, lessons learned. It is as I said, out of my comfort zone, but also an incredibly engaging process. And each time we've done it, I have been blown away by what the students have been able to accomplish in a semester. Well, Ben, let me ask you, you know, no one went to law school to because they love math. Mm-hmm. How do you encourage or how do you engage the students in this uh, program? Because most of them are, you know, they're, they're being told, you're going to law school, your number one goal is to pass the bar. How do you entice them into doing this type of legal analytics course? Well, one of the things that's really interesting about this is about 20% of our recent admittees have a STEM background. So again, in Atlanta, we're fortunate that we get students who come to us with some sort of quantitative or scientific background. And we have been pleasantly surprised by the number of students who don't want to lose that. They want to build on that. I think we have a pretty clear-eyed group of students. I've had more than one student come to me and say, I'm in law school, but I don't know that I want to practice law in the traditional sense. So I want to hear more about your program. So with those students, you can have that conversation Well, you're If that's your plan, then you're going to have to hone or develop these skills, and you're going to have to build on those. The other thing that we've done, because we don't want this to be, I don't know, um, stats light, Uh, we don't want this to be machine learning light, we have set it up so that students who don't have a uh, STEM background, if they want to get the certificate, they're currently required to take six credits of math and computer science. And they do that during an intensive or through an intensive set of foundational courses in the summer. Again, we're in, these are early days for this program. We may come back and tweak that. Uh, We had six students who did that this summer. It it has been a real bonding experience for them. It's also interesting. I think that old idea of, okay, this is, you know, you're in law school because you, you, don't want to do math. A good friend of mine, Debbie Ginsburg, does a presentation. They promised me there would be no math. Uh And then (laughs) points out all of the ways that, I mean, at the very least, you've got to calculate damages. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, I I found it interesting that you said that, that you have a number of STEM students that don't want to lose that because one of the things we've talked about before on the show is the Generation Z that are now entering uh, law school who are the no no child left behind uh, class mm-hmm. and and the stem the you know the engineering mathematics technology uh, children that that we've pushed them in that direction and one of the things we've talked about is how are at first law schools and secondly law firms in the legal industry going to adjust to these young adults now. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) or adult, I guess adults now, who are coming into the industry with these completely unique, or at least unique from previous generation, uh, educational processes that they've they've gone through. And and so this is a, a, a really interesting approach to how you keep them engaged in that lifelong learning that 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 they're they're doing, and and I think I think that's that's such a good observation. When I sit down with these students to look over transcripts as they're uh, thinking about joining the certificate program, you know, they'll say, "Well, I didn't take X Y Z in in college. I had it in high school. You know, I had AP Calc in high school. Would that count?" And I and I I tell them, "Unfortunately, that's not how the program is." 
currently configured. But if you think back, at least to my education, <laughs> that was much less yeah, yeah. common. And I think you really have hit the nail on the head that we've, we do need to find some way to leverage those talents and skills. And that is one of the things we're doing. We also, though, want to make very clear that even if you don't have a STEM background, these are skills that can be acquired. Yeah, yeah. And then our task and our challenge is making sure that it doesn't look like we're just forcing them to do this as some sort of hazing ritual. We want to make sure that that what they learn in those classes is then applied uh, in their subsequent courses. Uh, one of the ways that we're doing that is we have a new blockchain course in the spring that will be taught by someone who works at AT&T, who is a lawyer, but also holds 50 patents. And we have a, a number of other courses that are taught by adjuncts, but we are in the midst of hiring Georgia State, the College of Law, is in the midst of hiring someone whose primary focus will be cybersecurity. So we're hiring a new full-time faculty member who will primarily work in that area. Again, there is this challenge for all law schools uh, to decide whether you want to make this a focus and then to allocate necessary resources uh, to make that happen. This is really interesting. I mean, you, you definitely have a very forward-looking approach in terms of your, your hiring and the, you know, the professors you're bringing in who have real-world experience to be able to teach students. You know, are they sharing use, you know, sort of like real-world examples of, of how some of this you know, education that they're getting is applied? Are students being exposed to that? And are they coming back you know, in terms of their own work experience and sharing the use of, of legal analytics that they're experiencing? Well, I was just on a panel last week that, and it's funny to see how these things evolve. Originally, it was an IP panel a few years ago. It would have been strictly a career opportunities in IP. But this time, uh, we had one of our grads who works in analytics for an international firm. And we had another grad who is in the privacy department of a very large company in, in Atlanta. But one of the things that is interesting is, of course, with the uh, growth of privacy law, whether it's GDPR, what's coming in California, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, or other regulatory regimes, they come back to us and they've quickly found, and it's always wonderful to have a student come back, or an alum now, a graduate, come back and say, I was frankly surprised how relevant this was. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon they won't be saying that they were surprised. Pretty soon they'll just be sharing it as like it's, it's the norm. Yeah. What is the ROI of the lab projects and, and who's using the data and how? It's interesting as an academic, right? I used to be happy if like my mother read my work. Um, so now we are too. We are too. We're happy if our parents listen to the podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's actually I, my parents, by the way, did ask if they could listen to this afterwards. So mom and dad. Here you go, guys. Hope you're proud. <laughs> so it, it is an interesting mindset to be thinking about having like having a different responsibility for the work that we're doing. So when you say return on investment, I'm thinking about this in several different domains. So in the first year where we had students taking our new analytics and experiential classes, ROI for me meant uh, were students who were engaged in those classes, were they able to find jobs aligned with these new skill sets? And were they able, were they hired essentially for those skill sets? And we had amazing success with students getting placed at, at international law firms and positions of prestige, ones that they were really excited about and ones that they would not have gotten if they had not been exposed to these classes and these experiences. So that's like ROI. One is student success stories, pathways. And that's true for both the JD students as well as students in the Master's of Science and Analytics. So I think about career paths as one. Another ROI indicator for us is student interest. So that's another, another metric of ours. And we've had a lot of student interest. Students have signed up for our certificate programs. We've these new classes that are scary and ask law students to deal with math. They still sign up for it. That feels like success. And each one of those students that we give a new skill to, that's some kind of return on our investment. And then there's two other ways that we've been thinking about this. One is 
um, who is interested in our work and how can they use that? And in that, I think about the interest that we've received, uh, particularly from our from the legal community in Atlanta. Um, we have met with most of the major law firms now, either directly in person presenting to innovation or technology committees or meeting with leadership, talking to them as they think through what will they need to change about their practice going forward and what talent do they need to recruit internally to meet the challenges and the demands of an evolving law practice and increasingly data-sophisticated clients? So that's another, when I when like when a law firm wants to talk to you about your research, I feel like that's an indicator that maybe you're doing something interesting, if not also right. Out of that, specifically, we developed a workshop series for a law firm where we came in and worked in-house with their attorneys to try and level up the attorneys and give them the language to understand some basic concepts around text mining, machine learning, what is what is the technology that's driving the proliferation of platforms. And from that basic introduction, we then did a more intense workshop on machine learning and then an applied learning day where we broke down the process of a workflow and how you would tackle a legal question from an analytics angle. So that also felt like a great opportunity, not only to earn some financial return on investment um, in a dollar sense, but also an opportunity to, to showcase what we're doing and be relevant to the local bar and community. The last way that I'll say I think about return on investment is interest in the research that we are producing. On that ground, I think about that in terms of our larger projects. Are they going to be eligible for grant funding? We hope so. We have a, a current grant pending and plans for more applications. We also think about are we able to not just be, I use this bad analogy, like a cat in a window batting at something shiny, um, but are we able to use these tools not only for their cool factor, but are we able to use these tools to address gaps in the literature to enhance public access to important legal data that will help them make better decisions about their civil litigation, about their investments, which is a research area of mine. And we have larger aspirational goals than that. Like, are we doing research that matters, that opens up access to legal data, and that answers previously unanswerable questions because we've married our subject matter expertise with these new skills. So to the extent that we were able to do that, I think about that as that would be the ultimate return on investment in my mind. All right. Well, I'm going to ask the uh, the ultimate interview question here to, to wrap things up. So, so Ben, where, where do you see the future of the lab? What, what are your expectations and goals for, say, the next three to five years? One of the things that we certainly want to build out, I, I, for years was an IT director uh, before transitioning into this role. So the whole idea of forecasting five years out, that's very scary. But, but three years out at least, one of our goals is how is to make this part of the fabric of the law school. We want to avoid that thing where you're exiled to the corner of the fifth floor. Uh, and it's just those people. We want to build this into the fabric of the law school. And to that end, we are, we're exploring. I've been teaching some uh, workshops, you know, weekend workshops on uh, various coding topics and some things like that. But that's our primary goal. How do we weave this into the fabric of the law school? The challenge, I think, within three years is that if we do things right, and as we see the evolution of the market, just it's moving so fast. You look at the new tools from Lexus. If you look at Fastcase, if you look at Docket Alarm, you look at the speed with which things are evolving. This may just, without us even noticing, become built into our practice. And we want to make sure that we build that into the practice in a thoughtful way. And if we can do that in three years and have a self-sustaining self-perpetuating program that is part of the fabric of the law school, then I think we will have succeeded. That's our goal. I, for one, wish you well on that goal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank so you do I. Very much. Uh, it's, 
certainly been our pleasure to share some of our excitement with you. There's a lot going on here. And of course, this whole field is just exploding. Then again, I'm sure you guys, you you all have been doing this long enough to have seen many explosions <laughs> and contractions <laughs> in the market. Yeah, but I think this one's a keeper. Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 just there's too much out there that can be that can be mined um, that we we haven't even touched upon on yet. So um, this is just the beginning. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Chapman and Ann Tucker from Georgia State University's College of Law, the Legal Analytics and Innovation Initiative. I want to thank you both for uh, talking with us today. Thank you both so much for having us on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you all so much for your interest. Yeah, thank you. We really enjoyed it. Well, I really enjoyed having Ann and Ben on. Um, I have to admit, when we actually set this up, I wasn't sure whether or not this was going to be just a purely academic style of teaching. But the fact that they are engaged in the actual community, working with companies there in Atlanta, working with law firms in Atlanta, um, is is very exciting. And I think that they have their finger on the pulse of some real world examples of how you can help get these attorneys to be ready for the challenges that are going to hit them with, with legal analytics and with technology. It's, I, I was blown away. Yeah, I, I was too. And, you know, I had known a little bit about what they were doing, but I, I really did not know the, the full extent when we, when we came onto the show. So that was, that was fabulous. And, and, you know, I really think they are kind of straddling both sides. Like, you know, they are looking at more um, academic types of initiatives, but, but also more business related initiatives. Um, like you had mentioned, you know, working, you're working with firms and that the presentations that they're putting together for the bar association, um, those, those are things that are, that are going to be very practical and, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to the, the D-Law conference. I mean, one of the major focuses was about data and getting your handle on data and how you can use the data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 the Institute is really focusing on this and, and basically giving you real life examples of how you can do it. Mm, yeah, it was great. So once again, thanks to Ann Tucker and Ben Chapman from Georgia State University for joining us today. Yes, thank you very much. Hey, listeners, please take the time to subscribe to The Geek and Review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at, at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can call The Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270 or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, that wraps up another one. I will talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye, Greg. Don't have to.